Welcome to A Good Technologist, a podcast about how innovators are using technology to make our society a better place in Asia and across the world. This podcast is brought to you by Better.sg, a movement to drive tech for good based in Singapore. We believe that collaborations across disciplines and diverse people can help technology drive better social outcomes. My name is Robic and I'm your host today. Today's guest is Dr. Jade Kwa, an accomplished pediatric emergency specialist. She is also the director of the DAB program, which stands for Dispatcher Assisted First Responder, that seeks to teach anyone to do hands-only cardiopulmonary resuscitation, as well as learn how to use an automated external defibrillator in case of emergency. In addition to the launch of its nationwide campaign, DARE also launched an app with much success. There were positive signs in the uptake and interest internationally as well. But what's interesting is that five years after the launch of the DARE app, Dr. Jade realized that the needs of the masses had changed and much of the resources offered in the app could also be accessible from other platforms. Dr. Jade then made a decision to decommission the app five years after the successful launch. And today we're going to talk to Dr. Jade about the process of seeing the app go from cradle to grave. Dr. Jade, welcome to the show. Hi there. <laughs> you know, I've given you a bit of an intro, but for our listeners who haven't had the privilege to hear about you before, you know, could you give a quick introduction about yourself? Hi guys, I'm Dr. Jade Kwa. I'm a senior consultant in the emergency department. I work in both general and pediatric emergency rooms. My niche is in pediatric major trauma. I've also been the leader of the DARE program, which stands for Dispatcher Assisted First Responder Program, for a number of years now, um, actually since its inception. Our vision is to train at least one person in every household in Singapore on how to do CPR and use an AED. That is, how to do cardiopulmonary resuscitation and use an automated external defibrillator. So if we assume that there are between five and six million people in Singapore, we want to be training up at least a million people. In addition to that, I'm also a ICF certified life coach. So I try to sort of look at the broader perspective of things when I lead my projects and in healthcare, especially. There's a lot of cool qualifications. And I think we're going to be running into some big words today. I just struggle to pronounce the word defibrillator. Um, <laughs> you know, the DAB program sounds very cool. It's definitely something that sounds like it, it's going to make a difference, right? In, in terms of really being able to provide first responder assistance to people. Can you tell us about how DAB began? First of all, the reason why we call it the program DARE is because one of the barriers to entry for someone wanting to help someone else is because they don't dare to do it. So we're referring to bystanders in the community uh, for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So when um, somebody has cardiac arrest and collapses in the community, uh, their heart stops. And this can happen anywhere uh, in the park or at a bus stop or in the office. And what we're relying on is the person standing right next to them to be able to start chest compressions or use an AED in order to get that heart pumping again. So you can see how the person who's standing next to them might not be a doctor or a nurse or a paramedic, but just, you know, regular Joe or regular Jane. And uh, that person may be a stranger to the victim. So sometimes people are afraid uh, in Singapore. Um, they're afraid to touch someone they don't know, to lift up the shirt of someone they don't know, to do a skill that they aren't doing every day. Right. Mm -hmm. So for a doctor or a nurse, this is probably or an off-duty paramedic, this is probably going to be pretty easy. But for a layperson to 
try to do something that is new to them technically, culture doesn't support them socially sometimes. They're always afraid that people will laugh at them if they do it wrong. Video them, put it on stomp, you know, criticize them on social media. And what if the person, the victim actually passes away in the end? What if the person uh, doesn't recover well? So then they're worried that um, the family will blame them and say that, well, you see, this person died or this person didn't recover well neurologically because you didn't do the CPR properly in the first place. So for all of these reasons, bystanders often don't want to start that critical life-saving measure, which is just chest compressions without uh, the, the mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, and go and get an AED. So they're afraid that this giant machine is going to electrocute everybody. So they don't, don't dare to, to, to even try to, don't let you listen to how to use it. And that is the reason why we started DARE, a very simple 45-minute program that is conducted free for the public to attend. And we teach them the basics of how to Recognize if someone has collapsed, uh, if someone needs uh, CPR, and to use an AED. And in Singapore, when we conduct this program that teaches people to call 995, start CPR, and use an AED, we actually ask them to do this with the help of the dispatcher, the 995 dispatcher. That is to say, at the same time that the 995 dispatcher is dispatching the ambulance to you, they are going to stay on the phone and they are going to guide you on how to start that chest compression, how to, how to use the AED, and so that the victim can receive help even before the ambulance arrives, which in Singapore is about 8 to 12 minutes. Yeah, that's an awesome way to balance both the job to be done, which is to save someone's life, but also sort of addressing that emotional consideration that the first responder has, right? Because, I mean, I'll admit, I've been CPR trained, and one of the big questions I've asked myself is, you know, when push comes to shove and I have to respond, how do I make sure that I'm doing the right thing? Right? How do I make sure that all the training that I've had will actually come to fruition? And I think some of the stuff that you talked about, like whether it's getting the 995 dispatcher to be on the call, uh, whether it's that sort of very short and punctuated training, I think those all make a lot of sense. And what's cool is that you guys also moved on to make uh, an app, right? It's a digital venture of sorts. And I mean, we're better than actually We're all about tech for good. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, why did you decide to make that venture into a mobile phone application? And what were some of the challenges you faced in building that app? When we first wanted to do the app to sort of augment the program that we had already done, I faced quite a lot of um, opposition from uh, traditional educationists. So uh, people who are in the traditional education arena, they raised objections like, well, CPR training should be in person. My programs are already so pared down. So mine is not like a two-day certified program, a high-fidelity mannequin. My program is a very pared down, 45-minute, quick and dirty session so that you know enough to be able to save a life. But if you're interested in getting certified, go to you know Singapore Heart Foundation, go to Red Cross, go and pay to get yourself certified if you feel that you want to know more. But that practical skill set is definitely very important. That concept is great for delivering to the masses, but I did feel that they might forget. So I wanted to have an app that would remind them through fun sort of uh, cartoons, tutorials, quizzes, uh, up-to-date news, um, so that they're part of that community. But the objection that I got from traditional educationists is that if you give something so simple to people like an app to try to learn how to do CPR, they're not even going to go for any practical programs. We're making it too easy for them to learn. And they're not going to go for the hardcore practical sessions, which is very important for skills-based learning. So that people, I mean, the assumption is people are lazy. And if you give them, if you make it too easy for them, they're not going to do the hard bit. 
which is also important. When I first started doing this a long time ago, um, apps weren't that common. Uh, apps were also very expensive to make. So uh, the worry was that I'd be pumping in a lot of money into something that was um, new and scary and that maybe I was discriminating against people who didn't have mobile phones because, you know, not everybody might have a mobile phone. Um, so all of these concerns from very traditional educationists, all worth considering for sure. But I think sort of like weighing out the risks and benefit, uh, managed to convince them that we shouldn't be afraid to try something. We shouldn't assume the worst in people. The purpose of the app is to augment a simple skills-based practical teaching session, keep them in the community, let them know when, you know, real life rescues have happened, put them in touch with like an international community as well, when we share articles about uh, what's happening overseas, so that they feel like they're part of a uh, this uh, trained community that is able to deliver CPR using AED at a moment's notice. What I'm hearing is a lot of very thoughtful approaches to tech, right? Because I think a lot of people see what we call tech determinism, right? Seeing tech as a replacement for real life solutions and existing solutions but over here with the dare app it sounds like you recognize the value of a, you know a companion app so something to augment rather than to replace something that would actually lower the barriers so all, all very useful ideas of tech but recognizing the tech in itself is not going to be a replacement right and especially for something like first response skills you need to have a bit more, and, and that's where you connect people to some of the, the larger ecosystem that exists. That's exactly what we're seeing with Meta.sg as well. The need to not see tech as a complete replacement or a complete panacea for things. And the app actually gained a lot of traction, right? It was picked up internationally. You presented your journey to the UN. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Oh, that was really cool. So we were talking about how to take very traditional industries into, well, into the future. So of course, uh, tech and healthcare came up. I was invited to speak to uh, represent Singapore. I was just so encouraged by the response that I got from uh, my, you know, real life audience. This is pre-COVID, right? So uh, people were actually there in front of you. People could come up to you, shake your hand, congratulate you. Because um, at that time, I was thinking, who would want to listen to this female leader, you know, in, in healthcare in a small country like Singapore, who's got, you know, apparently small problems like, oh, people, people don't believe in tech, you know, people uh, don't want to fund this, this aspect of, of healthcare, they rather fund like sexy things like what's happening within the hospital itself, rather than pre-hospital uh, care when it comes to say, uh, cardiovascular collapse, maybe these people don't care about um, the, the, the problems that are unique to sort of a bit more conservative culture in Singapore, where in the first place, the problem is that strangers don't dare to perform CPR on other people. Hence, we have to kind of socialize that concept. But in fact, when I presented it um, to, you know, a, a room that was dominated by men, they were actually really, really interested. They were interested to know about the real life problems that we uh, had faced. And they were interested in the, in the stories behind it. Um, and I was just encouraged by the fact that actually my international audience was listening a little bit more closely than some of my Singaporean audiences. Wow. <laughs> something connected and something resonated with them. The fact that it was a very people-focused uh, problem that I was trying to solve, the fact that I was trying to do it in, in a big way through the masses, and the fact that tech was going to be, you know, one of the answers for that. So that was a that was a lovely, a lovely experience for me. Definitely is something that was very meaningful. And I'm sure that whole experience is very, very important to a lot of the, the stuff that you're doing now. But I'm curious also because recently, in September last year, 2021, you also made the decision to decommission the app five years after the launch. And I think that's a part of the reason why I'm so excited to talk to you because 
a lot of times when it comes to tech for good projects or just any sort of community impact projects, sometimes people feel the need to keep pushing on, even if you start to see some indicators that maybe, you know, it's a need for a pivot or need for a change. So I'm curious to unpack, you know, how did this decision come about? How did you decide to make the very, very big decision to decommission an app? Thank you for asking. That was a very hard and a very painful decision. I mean, after all the effort that we poured into getting this app up and running, getting traction, not just from um, stakeholders, from a funding perspective, but also from the community. We had so many people who were on it, you know, um, in the in the first um, the first few months, you know, we did a huge publicity push. We had um, a lot of local celebrities like Adrian Pang, um, you know, the ministers were involved. And then COVID happened. <laughs> so when the pandemic happened, the D.A.R.E. program itself skidded to a halt because we couldn't do in-person mass trainings. The app, which was meant to sort of augment those trainings, which was crucial to teaching people how to do CPR and crucial to giving them the confidence to do CPR, you know, those short in-person sessions, that also then took us a, a, a real a backseat. Um, at one point, I thought, hey, we have a nifty app. We can use this to replace the short in-person sessions during this COVID pandemic, and we can really push for that. But it was hard because we were really competing for, you know, social media space. We call it like the attention economy, right? Yes, exactly. Attention economy. But basically, it's like everybody just wanted to know about COVID. Everybody was scared, you know. So we're really competing with that when we're trying to, to, to tell people on social media, hey, let's learn how to do CPR. You know, at that point, people are just every, it's not even about helping other people, just trying to help themselves to survive and not catch COVID. You know, this was yeah. during the, the, the beginning stages when we knew when we knew less than we know now. So it was really, really hard. In fact, people were trying not to spend so much time on Zoom as far as possible. They were trying not to be on new apps. They were just trying to, to find a way to not be too stressed. That was very interesting. A period that I thought would result in like, a surge in the number of people using our app because of the lack of in-person training. Actually, that did not happen, no matter how hard we pushed. Um, and I realized that a lot of people who used our app were people who actually attended the physical training in the first place. And then we would tell them, when you leave today, we will still be able to support you. Please download this app and please right. continue to learn and keep in touch. And that was sort of like our, our main push uh, previously. And now without the in-person training, it was really hard to get someone's attention uh, to do something. Subsequently, also a lot of rules in the hospitals came up. I mean, rules that are, they're, they're correct. We, we should have them. And we know better now than before. And we know how to be a little bit more ethical and behave properly in terms of like online ethics. So uh, previously, in order to get people to register for the app as an individual that we knew to be authentic, we would get them to sign in using their identity number. This was to prevent people from just signing in with their names and calling themselves Donald Duck and then just, you know, not being a real user. And it was difficult for us to track their activity and their behavior. Uh, so it was difficult to, to know who they were. So we tried to get them to sign in using their IC numbers before because of cybersecurity and PDPA. So we decided that uh, as a healthcare system that we would not do that anymore. You know, and we had to sort of implement some security uh, to make sure that people felt safe using the app. We hadn't thought about that initially when we first started that, but it was still really, really normal. I mean, you go to like cold storage or NTUC and then you fill in a lucky draw and you're putting in your IC number in the hope of getting like a, a Volvo, but now you would never do that. We looked at what it would cost us to integrate our app into the new cybersecurity PDPA enhanced environment. We realized that it was going to um, cost us even more. So we thought, okay, this is this is truly now very, very tricky. You know, what do we do? Do we do, we do a whole new app? The other interesting 
um, aspect that came up was that even while we were conducting our DARE sessions and pushing the DARE app, um, other aspects of training bystanders how to do CPR and use an AED became quite enhanced. For example, when we put out the app, we were trying to teach people how to do CPR and what the steps in using an AED were. But at the same time, during this period over across the years, we managed to get AEDs to be put up quite widely around the island. So there are one in every two HDB blocks at the lift landing area. They're in community centers, they're at the zoo, uh, they're at shopping centers and the, at the information counter at security. So they're in lots of places. And because the signage next to the AEDs was so complicated, they were like a 12-step sort of like program um, to use, we thought, okay, let's uh, let's complement all these new AEDs that are coming out of the place with better signage. So we kind of scoped it down to the bare minimum, you know, uh, and the DARE team was heavily involved in that, uh, tried to make it more attractive for people to use it. It made it easier for them to understand. And slowly we hacked away at all of the problems that the app had tried to solve before. Also, we were very uh, successful in trying to get the DARE program into big institutions like schools, for example. So now I'm proud to say that people who go through primary school and secondary school in Singapore will have touched base with our DARE program at some stage, both in theory and in practical sessions. That's and this awesome. is conducted within the schools as well, which takes the load off my, my DARE trainer. So we sort of like trained the trainer and then they ran with it. So we may not need to rely on an app to capture this you know, next generation of uh, bystanders, the need for to pump in more money to revamp our app became less. It overall, it seemed a better idea to say, let's stop this now. Any information that we need people to search for online, we can put on our website, for example, and have people just look at that. Um, we realize also that people want to be quite lean on their phones now. So, I mean, for myself, you know, there are many apps I may have downloaded, but I kind of like get rid of a lot of them after I've kind of gotten what I need to. Um, and this is anything, you know, from a, a reading app to a, a mindfulness app, you know, uh, there's just, there's a lot of apps out there right now. So we thought, okay, the behavior of people really also is to just click on the link, go to the website and see what they, they, they need to know. Web apps, yeah. Taking all that into consideration, we decided to, um, yeah, make the painful decision to lay the DARE app to rest and focus on other aspects of the DARE program, the real, the true reason of why we wanted to have that app in the first place. So um, just enhance that education. So the app was always a means to an end and we needed to make sure that we didn't get sidetracked, spending more and more money trying to navigate new environments. It was pretty hard for my team. So we decided to just adapt in another way. Well, first of all, thank you for, for really laying it all out for us. And I know it was a very difficult decision. And I think I can appreciate that there were both technical considerations as well as environmental considerations that really forced your team to evaluate, you know, what's a, the best way to serve your community. I, I kind of want to unpack on the human aspect of this, right? So I guess at the end of the day, we're all human beings who have a lot of passion for the projects that we're involved in. We consider the blood and sweat that has gone into the development of the app. How did you come to that place of, you know, being ready to make the decision to decommission the app, emotionally, mentally, psychologically. The decision to stop the app involved having to look at numbers, how much it would actually cost us to do this, what we could use that money for instead, the man hours it would take as well to be able to sort of um, push the app at a time when it was like an all-time low in terms of usership. Once I decided to do it uh, with my core team, then I had to go ahead and 
um, socialize that concept with the broader team, mainly the stakeholders who had, for example, funded the app in the first place, getting them to understand that, well, that was not a waste of money, you know, that things have changed, that the app has done what it needed to do over those years. And now it was um, up to us, the core team, to see how we can support the, the the community that we want to reach out to in other ways. That was then up to us. But it was certainly quite difficult because everybody who told us we shouldn't have the app in the first place was now trying to convince us we should continue the app. It felt like it was because they seemed to think it would be a waste. And I guess I was just trying to explain to them that it wasn't. In the same way that, you know, when you when you end a relationship with somebody that, oh my gosh, I've wasted five years of my life. But actually, truly, you have grown in some way. You know, the people around you have this impact on other people around you as well, you know, through that relationship and through how you've grown. And when it's time to lay a relationship to rest, then that's what it is. You can't you can't say, well, I wish I'd never gone out with you. You know, um, you, 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 you never really know what the alternative would have been. You just know the reasons why you went into that relationship, why you committed yourself to that and the reasons why you're ending that. And that's all it is. And you have to move on. So it's helpful. It's helpful because I think you need that sort of perspective and that ability to both zoom in and zoom out and look at the larger picture. You know, it's, it's definitely a very, very mature and sophisticated way of looking at this. It's extremely difficult to want to pivot or make the decision to even wind down certain projects, right? Especially when you're a tunnel vision, you're an operator, you're just trying to execute. I think when it comes to some of the projects in the Benedetto SG community, I think it's similar. You kind of see some projects that maybe have been struggling to, to, to stay alive. They're wondering, you know, what really is the next step given some of the problems they've been facing. As someone who's gone through this journey, what advice would you give them to really be able to have that sense of perspective, to, to, to do exactly what you did, which is to really appreciate the journey, but also consider the difficult decisions that need to be made. So if you sort of do this on your own, you know, the voices that you think you're hearing, all the fears, the, the, the self-doubt, the imposter syndrome, everything that's, that, that's going to prevent you from making the better decision, the so-called right decision, whether that decision is to forge ahead or to stop or to quit or to whatever, those voices are actually your own voices. You're in this echo chamber and your fears just get amplified. And it's very difficult because you only have your own perspective, but the voices seem so loud. It's much better to work as a team or to speak with somebody if you don't have a, if you, if you don't have a team. And you know that person could be somebody that you're accountable to. And it doesn't necessarily have to be like a, a qualified professional coach like myself. It could be someone who's just on your side, someone who wants to listen to you and give you that space to be able to talk through some of the decisions. It takes time to be able to unpack and spin out that spool of thought um, to be able to get a different perspective. So if that person isn't willing to give you that space to discuss it, you yourself are unlikely to land on, you know, that place of greater insight. Now, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, talked a bit about being a life coach. I also know that you are a fashion designer. You're a mom to six children and two fur kids. That's, that's very impressive that you do all of this. How do you practice balance and intentionality in your life? And learning to say no without feeling guilty, because sometimes it's not the saying no that's the problem. It's the guilt that I feel after that. That's the problem. When I decline, say, social invitations, for example, if I feel like I want to focus on something to, to do with, say, work, that was something that was pretty hard for me before because I was always afraid that if I kept saying no to friends to focus on something, they might 
they might not like me anymore <laughs> or they might think that I was too nerdy, you know, and I might lose touch. But I've realized that nobody knows you like you do, you know, and sometimes something is just really important to do at that point in time. For me right now, um, fighting the good fight alongside my frontliners is very important. So I'm pulling in extra shifts on the front line. I'm seeing very few friends. Um, I'm seeing enough of them that I'm not, you know, overly stressed. But uh, for those who who, who aren't, uh, you know, exactly aligned with me on that, it, it's very hard for me to take that time out. For me, spending time doing my recovery sleep is important. It helps to have space to think as well. So I am dedicating more time for myself to spend time just breathing, considering how the day has gone. I pray, I journal, and that's helpful for me. I will say everything that you just said is already super difficult to do. Like <laughs> praying, taking time to breathe, taking time to, to say no. I think those are like, whether we like it or not, the real needle movements, right? In terms of actually finding ways to, to carve space for ourselves and carve space for healing and recovery. So yeah, thanks for, for affirming that. And we like to wrap up by asking a question. Uh, we ask everyone in one word, what is the future of tech for you? Human-centered. Awesome. Well, Dr. Jade Kwa, thank you so much for coming on our show. We really appreciate both the story of how you started the DAP program and the app, as well as some of the real frank conversation on how you, you made the decision to pivot and focus on on newer aspects of the program. Uh, we really appreciate you sharing all of that and all the best in uh, you know, your next projects, your next journey, and especially being on the front line right now. Thank you for, for doing your part. And, and yeah, we hope that you know, everyone comes out of this better and safer. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Good Technologist. If you like what we are doing, you can always find out more on our website, better.sg. And subscribe to the podcast via your typical channels such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever app you prefer. This podcast was produced by Grace So and edited by myself, Rovic Robin. Our email address is goodtech at better.sg. Let us know what you think. 